This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, and welcome to Oh God, What Now?, the podcast for what Liz Trust would call plastic patriots, and Rishi Sunak would call people who vilify Britain. <laughs> I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet the panel. Alex Andre is a commentator. Hi, Alex. I'm delighted to be here with you, Dorian. God bless you. <laughs> I'm blushing. Um, Attorney General Suella Braverman, my fave. Oh, your fave, yeah, isn't she? Uh, has set out new orders for government lawyers. They now have to offer solution-based advice instead of rejecting policies as unlawful. Mm. What does this mean if a policy is unlawful? What's the solution-based <laughs> advice? Don't, don't do it? I mean, what she's basically saying is that she wants government legal advisors to be less risk averse. And instead of telling ministers that policy is potentially unlawful, to concentrate on offering them ways to get round its potential unlawfulness. Like a sort of mob lawyer. <laughs> yeah. She describes this as a sort of, I think she described it as a private sector approach. Um, <laughs> the private sector of mobs. Which I think shows... Actually, two things. One, that she fundamentally <clears throat> misunderstands the nature and purpose of public law, yeah. which is to balance th this incredible might the state ye uh, yields, wields, sorry, against a, a relatively powerless individual. It's not there to appease the state. And, and the second thing she misunderstands, which I think this whole government misunderstands, is, is the value of scrutiny and challenge to good policy. Mm. They've never got that. No. You know, they look at parliamentary debate, um, journalistic inquiries, protests even, judicial review. They look at all of that instead of seeing it as the crucible that brings together good policy because it's been tested. They look at it as an obstacle to get over or get round. It just get, it's just and, getting away with their brilliant idea. And does... And as a result, they end up with shit policies that disintegrate on contact with reality. Look at the Northern Ireland Protocol. You know, mm. they shoved that entire treaty through Parliament in the space of hours. And then they're surprised that there's not a consensus there. They, they haven't worked out the basic thing that lack of rigor before results in failure after, which is like... Children get that by about the age of eight or nine. Is she the worst attorney general of all time, do you yeah. think? Yeah. Uh, good to know. Meanwhile, in Brexit, uh, Mogg has admitted he was wrong to say there would be no post-Brexit queues at Dover. But I got it wrong for the right reason, if I may put it that way, he said. May he put it that way? He may not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Basically, a lot of what he said in that interview is nonsense. First of all, there's no EU state has the power to just wave people <laughs> through and into the the outer yeah. EU border. The the requirement to actually check and stamp a, stamp a passport is written into legislation. The the Foreign Office website advises people to make sure they get the stamp on the, their passport because otherwise, next time you're going in or coming out, you have no way of proving you haven't overstayed. Yeah. The other thing to point out is that earlier this year in January, when the queues were in Calais, he was still blaming the French. So we have somehow ended up in this situation where we've taken back control of our borders while simultaneously being not responsible for anything that happens either way. It's, uh, that's Brexit for you. Returning to the podcast after a long break, Nina Schick is a geopolitics and disinformation expert. Welcome back, Nina. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's lovely. Um, it's been too long. A coal plant in Lower Saxony has just reopened as Russia decreases its gas flow to Germany. Now, we had a bit of a discussion when Angela Merkel stepped down about her record. And I think not much was said generally in the press about the decision to kind of uh, give up on nuclear power and rely heavily on Russia for energy. 
as time goes on, is this appearing more and more like a, a serious blot on her record? It is a serious blot. I mean, it's a catastrophic blunder from a geopolitical perspective and one that's rather surprising given that Angela Merkel herself was acutely aware of what Russian aggression in the East could look like, herself having grown up in Eastern Germany, herself being, you know, uh, for many years intimately understanding Putin and how he perceived of himself on the world stage. But the Energie vendor, one of the most kind of radical decisions that Merkel took, which was after Fukushima to basically go off nuclear power. And then, you know, the narrative around this was we will um, transition more to green energy and sustainable energy, which is, of course, very important. But the bit that often gets missed out is, in the meantime, we will rely on Russian gas. Now, that has been devastating. And this winter in Germany will be very difficult because obviously that gas is being turned down. And now you see Germany having to power up, like you mentioned, coal plants, right, to to get the energy needs met. So from a geopolitical perspective, I do think it was a blunder, um, especially as there, what happened in Fukushima is very unlikely to happen in Germany, right? No tsunamis. Or, uh, uh, so again, one that Angela Merkel turned on because the public sentiment, the emotion after Fukushima in Germany was so high. But in reality, I think if you had looked at the real geopolitical risks, the situation which is unfolding now was predictable and something that Angela Merkel should have been more aware of, I think, and, and she, given her background and her understanding of Russia and Putin. And given, you know, obviously how long, I mean, nuclear power plants are extremely long term. There's presumably there's only so much that Schultz can do on the hoof. Is there more that it could be doing? My understanding is once you start powering down the nuclear power plants, it's really hard to get them into action again. But Schultz does have the public on his side in the sense that the German public is willing to bear the brunt of higher energy prices, uh, rationing on energy. The, there's certainly talk of um, German industry having to be on an energy quota for this winter, whilst they try desperately to get new um, LNG kind of terminals in the North Sea and find new ways to kind of diversify their energy needs. I don't see them going back to nuclear. And this is where France is very different from Germany. And France is kind of, you know, not as adversely impacted as Germany is in this crisis. But the fact still stands that for a country which is very proud of its green credentials, we are burning an awful lot of coal. Right. <laughs> and yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it's something, again, that I'm a bit surprised by in retrospect, given the keen kind of understanding politicians like Merkel and even the SDP liberal left wing of um, in German politics have of Russia and uh, Russia's kind of intentions in Eastern Europe and especially Ukraine. Our guest this week is a writer for Have I Got News For You and Dead Ringers and the author of Drama Queen, One Autistic Woman and a Life of Unhelpful Labels. Sarah Gibbs, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be here. Heavyweight question for you here. After 37 years on air, Neighbours finally ended last week and you said you've decided to start all over again from the beginning, which it Hi. seems <laughs> the team of crack number crunchers tell me that if you did nothing else, including sleep, it would take 154 days to watch every episode. Um, presumably you will be doing other things and sleeping. Um, why, why are you doing this? I know my throat just closed up when he said that. <laughs> um, why am I doing this? I didn't think it through. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm panicking. Uh, everyone has to listen to it because this is going to ruin my life. Um, so, yeah, please, please come listen to the podcast. Um, it's called Leaving Erinsborough because that's what the characters always say when they um, when they leave town. It's a bit like, I don't know, if you live in... Uh, Bradford and you, you move away you say I'm leaving Bradford it sort of sounds very melodramatic uh, why am I doing this I've watched Neighbours it, since before I had a TV I grew up without a TV and I used to sort of sneak around to friends houses and like knock on Neighbours literally my neighbours doors and beg them to let me <laughs> so watch it's good it. you were learning from the theme tune of Neighbours yeah <laughs> exactly it's in, really in the spirit of the show and when they axed it 
I it was I was just so devastated. My husband sort of heard this wailing from upstairs, and at the time, my my grandpa was was really ill. He was in his last weeks, and he came running up thinking my grandpa had died. It's like no, no, neighbors has died. Like <laughs> proper tragedy. Were um, you still watching it by the end? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, right. I, I have not missed an episode oh, um, since I was oh. uh, twelve years old. I I watch it religiously, and I, I formed an entire social life around it. It's really very sad. Um, like I, I I used to tell people I watch it ironically, but I I don't think I'm fooling anyone anymore. It's just sort of you know a little slice of escapism every day, and now it's gone, and all I'm left with is. Rishi Sunak versus Liz Trust for entertainment. And it's it's not fun, lads. I've got some bad news for you about this podcast, because we will be talking about the latest in the Tory leadership race to the bottom. And Neighbours. Hot... <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> and uh, Hot Strike Summer, where Guy Pearce will be returning to join us. <laughs> um, everyone from BT engineers to train drivers is striking over the value of Labour. How does the Labour Party, literally the Party of Labour, handle industrial action? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, following England's win at the Women's Euros, how should sports education change? And what are our memories of PE? Spoiler warning, for me, not good. But first, a quick message from Alex. We're back live and direct at the Leicester Square Theatre in London on Wednesday, the 14th of September. Roz, Ian, Dorian and myself will tread the boards mere minutes from Downing Street, where Liz Truss's refurbishment will be well underway. Don't miss it. It's our last show of 2022 at the Leicester Square Theatre. Tickets are available now at leicestersquaretheatre.com. And there's a special four tickets for the price of three deal for everyone, too. Patreon supporters got exclusive early access last week and backers can still get the 10% discount on individual tickets and the 4 for 3 deal. So a £20 ticket could cost you as little as £13.50. That's leicestersquaretheatre.com for tickets and search Patreon Oh God What Now for ticket discounts and all our lovely supporter benefits. Shadow Transport Minister Sam Tarrant was sacked last week for breaking collective responsibility by giving broadcast interviews from an RMT picket line. Just days later, Shadow Leveling Up Minister Lisa Nandy appeared in a picket line in support of BT workers in her constituency. Unlike Tarrant, uh, she won't be getting the sack. Alex, this has been read as inconsistency, but aren't these two different situations? I understand your invitation. <laughs> I I don't know. That's what it seems to me. I would go as far as to say that there's plausible deniability that they're exactly the same. But But she wasn't busking policy, was she? Yeah, my gut tells me, though, that Starmer realised he was in the wrong place in this and softened in between the the two because, first of all, Nandy Mm -hmm. is a much more important member of his shadow cabinet. She would be a real blow. So what I'm saying basically is that there's certainly a level of flexibility from Friday that applied to Nandy could have seen her sacked. Right. And a level of flexibility from Monday that applied to Tarry might not have seen I her see. sacked. I see. Okay. So it feels like there has been a bit of a shift. Do you think Nandy's decision was a, a challenge to Starmer's authority? It's a little bit unclear because I've seen reports that, you know, she basically defied him and then I've seen other reports that she you know, gave notice and said, look, this is uh, what's going to happen and, and got approval. So I don't know which of this That's is not true. the vibe I got from my contacts within the party. I think, I think it was a challenge to his policy on this. I don't think it was a general challenge mm-hmm. to his leadership. I think, uh, I think the senior shadow cabinet is quite happy and unified. Oh, no, moment, this is what actually. I mean, though. Like, is this um, whole policy of not letting shadow cabinet members onto picket lines... Is there recognition that that, that is yeah, a mistake? I th- yeah, and I think it was a mistake, basically. Sarah, BBC reporters were surprised uh, the members of the public they interviewed were pretty ambivalent about the strikes. Um, have the press and parties misjudged the public mood and just assumed that, um, that they'll be anti? Ah, it's really hard to know. I don't know what the public mood is on anything anymore. Like once upon a time, it was really predictable and it made sense. And, you know, you you could sort of predict what people's politics were, what their views were based on demographics, based based on sort of traditionally where they lived, Red Wall voters, Tory voters. 
I don't have a clue what the public mood is anymore. What are they I, saying I on Ramsey lost. Street? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, I'm at, I'm at sea. I, I, I don't know. In my bubble, it's broadly supportive of strikes. Um, but, you know, I, I'm aware that I'm in very much in, in a sort of, quote, liberal elite bubble of, of people who, who, you know, who think a certain way. I don't know. Since, since the last election, I have, I, 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 what do you people want? I don't know anymore. There does seem to be like quite an old assumption, though, like one I remember growing up with, you know, that strikers are bad. Mm. Yeah. And the assumption that the public will will think that, you know, that will always be thinking of how they are inconvenienced. There does seem to be a lot more recognition. I mean, it's now of, of, of why they're doing it. So I just did a, a daily uh, bunker on unions with a, a professor of sort of uh, trade relations at Leeds University. And it is a tricky one. Some unions seem to get a rougher ride than others. You know, train drivers are forever held up as overpaid, um, demanding oafs, while no one really says anything bad about nurses. Um, it, it is a really complicated situation. It seems that a lot of people are in favour until it inconveniences them and then they turn very anti. Part of the, the I suppose, some of the unrest within Labour is it coincides with Rachel Reeves largely dropping um, the Corbyn era nationalisation pledges for cost reasons uh, rather than, it seems, ideological reasons. Nina, then, what do you think? I mean, I suppose the, the Rachel Reeves argument here is that it's very expensive, I mean, this is the reverse. You privatise things, you get a lot of money in. You nationalise things, you have to pay off shareholders. Obviously, nationalisation has a particularly kind of sort of sacred place um, and Labour, particularly on the Labour left. I mean, do you do? Have, are you feeling that this would be a good use of money? Are there some industries where you think, yes, and others, uh, at no point? Yeah, I mean, I think that I can broadly agree with that sentiment, especially when you see it working um, with, how it's meant to be working in other European countries. You know, the idea, for instance, that train companies are for-profit uh, private enterprises is pretty bizarre from, for instance, um, a German perspective, right? And then you come to the UK and then you realise they don't work anyway. <laughs> so uh, That seems to be, train seems to be the one where Labour's still quite keen. Mm. But I, I, I think in many ways... Nationalization is an old economic solution. I think we, we've talked about this a couple of times before. I think what you could do is introduce a state player into the market that would increase competition, shake up the market. You know, when franchises fail or franchises expire, there's nothing to say that the state can't take over a particular m monopoly because they are monopolies, the lines. Mm -hmm and see if it can run it better. And as a matter of fact, when it has in the last decade, it has run it better and made a profit and put that profit back in the coffers. So I think there are mixed solutions out there that, that are not all the way this way or the, all the way that way. Nina, John McTernan, um, old Blairite, argues that it is the party of Labour, but that doesn't mean it's the party of strikes and that there are many other workers' rights issues, you know, to, to, to sort of talk about and to... Uh, improve there is also a sense that it's labor that some people would feel it's labor's obligation to support every strike like what do you think that it, it it what are its obligations when it comes to to strikes well obviously some would argue that this contradiction between labor's public pronouncements of support for workers while it's distancing itself from unions is unsustainable and that labor should seize its kind of traditional greatest potential power base or potential greatest avenue for power, organized labor. But I can see why from Starmer's perspective, he's calculated not only that he needs to break from unions um, along the lines of new labor, but also distance himself from these strikes. Because not only from the perspective of winning a general election, but also with regards to labor's own voting demographic, I can I can't see why there would be widespread sympathy for rail strikes, not only because of the inconvenience and disruption, but also because the pinch right now is being felt by millions across the country, right? Since 2008, if you look at wages and in particular public sector wages, 
they absolutely nosedived in terms of real terms when taking into account inflation. So I think it's absolutely insane that we're facing this situation where basically high-skilled professional workers, whether you are teachers, civil servants, or nurses, are now basically unable to eke out enough to support themselves and their families. So in that way, when you consider it in the context of the cost of living crisis, inflation, the looming recession, you can see why the issue of railway strikes become totemic. So I'm certainly sympathetic to the view that Labour's understanding of an advocacy for workers should extend beyond kind of the classical union and strike paradigm. Do you worry, though, that, um, you know, you're saying there is a sort of maybe a new Labour-ish attempt to, at least in the in the public eye and in political terms, to sort of keep the unions at a distance. But they're, they're really unhappy. Even someone like um, Sharon Graham at Unite, who is not a Len McCluskey power broker figure that wants to kind of dictate the, the shape of the party. She's really unhappy. Like, you know, the sort of pro-Starmerish GMB is unhappy. So, I mean, is there a danger? No, you know, they're not, the big ones are not disaffiliating. They're not sort of withdrawing funding, but they keep talking about it. And so if Starmer just seems, you know, so cold towards the unions that it, it just reads as hostility, isn't there a danger that there's vital source of funding? I mean, if we're being really just financially brutal about it, is withdrawn at a time when their finances are in pretty bad uh, shape. Absolutely. And I think Starmer's handling of the rail strikes altogether is going to be a huge test for him, not only because the union's power and influence, but because, as you already pointed out, labor needs their money. So ultimately, I think he'll have to make more conciliatory noises to navigate what is undoubtedly a very tricky terrain. And this rift that you see opening up with the party and unions and organized labor, as you mentioned, is not only kind of on the far left of the party. It's it's there's been widespread dissatisfaction in the kind of what would Tony, as in Tony Blair, do kind of view that Starmer seems to be taking in terms of I'm going to have to break from unions, but. He needs the money. And I think that ultimately he has to kind of navigate himself into a position where, you know, he's not seen as being too far left, doesn't have the legacy of Corbyn. And he's already kind of struggling with the baggage that he inherited from the Corbyn eras. But, you know, he's going to have to work with the unions, whether he likes it or not. It does make me really uneasy. I just think this is one of those areas where the uh, the need to be not Corbyn drives him in a direction where he sort of making enemies and sort of disappointing friends that he doesn't have to do. You know, the, yeah, the Santari I mean, situation was unnecessary. I mean, I know that Santari did break collective responsibility and that you're therefore technically a sacking is legit. But the perception, the way that, that was reported was that he was sacked merely for being on the picket line. Yeah. And that became the narrative. And he kind of was, let's be right. honest. Okay. I mean, you can dress it up however. Right. But but I think the point is... It looks bad. But both things can be true. So I do think Labour's position is difficult and is more multifaceted than saying Labour always backs the unions. I don't think that's actually a policy of the government in waiting because a government has to wear a lot of different hats, you know. Occasionally it's mediator in, in those disputes. Occasionally it's the employer in those disputes. Occasionally unions make competing <clears throat> demands against each other. You know, doctors have a different union to nurses, to hospital orderlies, to cleaners. Senior civil servants have a different union to junior civil servants. Right. And so just to say oh, we're on the side of union, it's it's not a policy. Well, it needs to be more nuanced They should that. take a leaf out of Grant Shapp's book because he just says, <laughs> it's not my problem. You 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 guys sort it out. It's like there's, there's, there's no policy at all. Yeah. But, but the truth is the left can't do that because of its association with unions. But what I think is happening is that all this is a proxy for a different kind of unrest within the party. I think it's filling a void of actual policy and strategy, and that void has been left by Starmer. Um, you know, he spent the, the first really 18 months of his um, stint as 
defining himself as not Corbyn, hmm. then he spent the next 18 months defining himself as not Johnson. Both Johnson and Corbyn are largely gone now. So at some point, he's going to have to stand up and define himself as actual Starmer and have some policies and, and relay some values. I can't think of a single well, one. And I'm a political obsessive. Oh, there's, 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 no, there's bits. There's loads of There's policies. bits, but there's not a retail offering that I could go to a friend in the pub that's a wavering voter and say, vote Labour because they're offering you X. I can make loads of well, argument, vote Labour okay. because they'll kick the Tories out and they're shit. But that's not enough. Well, I disagree, but we're not, we don't have time to, be, yeah. to do all the policies. But someone who does have a policy is Sam Tarry. He was calling for pay rises above inflation because he says the alternative is an effective pay cut. Is the policy right, even if the way that he delivered it um, was not? No, um, because actually at times of stagflation, everyone will take a hit. The question is how much of a hit you take and how you distribute it. So it could be that, um, you know, the lowest paid of the rail workers should be offered a, a, an 11% um, pay rise to keep up with inflation, but that the higher paid right, right. of the railway workers could take a little mm. bit more of their hit because their finances have a bit more fat. Um, and so I, I don't think you can say across the board, give everyone 11% because inflation is 11%, because then you get into the difficulty of the Conservatives coming and saying, show us how you're funding that. How much extra tax will that be to pay all those public sector and anything which workers in, Anything which involves the phrase magic money tree makes my heart sad. Well, anyway, the good news is uh, that, that despite... I mean, the, the, this thing is a sort of battle between the different factions of the Labour Party. Um, the Ipsos, and I know this is at one extreme here, gives them a poll lead of 14 points. So I don't know whether the impression of... Nina, what do you think? Do you think that there is... Because in some quarters, this is, you know, reported as a real sort of clash. You know, Erin Jones went ham, as they say, on Starmer in a, in a kind of video. And there's obviously there's very angry people on the left. But I... Do you get the impression that Labour is coming across as sort of fragmented, given the fact that sort of the Ford report didn't actually become that bigger, bigger story and that none of these deselect reselection battles seem to be ending in anybody being deselected so far? So, no. And the reason why is like Alex still is and like you still are, I used to be a total Westminster political obsessive. But <laughs> over the years, my cynicism and just utter dismay at what's been unfolding means that I've taken less of an interest in Westminster politics. So as somebody who doesn't follow these issues day to day, I can confidently state that I certainly don't get that perception because the overwhelming feeling that I get instead, which I bet is what a huge swathe of the British public is feeling, is just utter disgust and repulsion at the Tories and everything that we already knew years ago when we were on this podcast talking about Brexit before Brexit and how incompetent, you know, Johnson and this cabinet would be has come to pass. So I think that is now so firmly imprinted in the public mind. And we've seen, you know, scandal after scandal. I mean, the late, the revelations about Partygate and God knows, you guys have all discussed it in, in great detail over the past few months. But because that is so strong, I think that Labour would really have to mess up to be seen as mm. the, the worst party than the yeah. Conservatives. I don't get a sense that Labour, I mean, I'm confident, I, I know everybody I know who's like traditionally not a Labour supporter and maybe doesn't even want to support Labour is like, oh my God, we cannot wait to get into that ballot box and vote for Labour next time. That's good, some good news, man. This is, this is a, real, a real upward arc, this <laughs> section. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Now let's take a question from a Patreon backer in But Your Emails. This week, Jen C asks, after the world record time in which Liz Truss reversed her plans to cut public sector pay when they turned out to be unworkable, we will be getting to that later, and the opposite of levelling up, should we applaud politicians who quickly rectify stupid ideas instead of attacking them for their gaffes? Sarah, I'm, I'm afraid that you are probably culpable in your script writing work of attacking <laughs> politicians for their gaffes from time to time. Uh, um, what do you think? When someone new turns on a shit policy, um, should we go well done for acknowledging that it's a shit policy? I mean, yes, but also I'm very, very wary of creating a sort of, I mean, say, so creating the, the politicians we have now, and this is very evident with this, this trust and with Starmer to an extent, they're sort of human clipboards. They, they rule by opinion poll. And when, when the opinions are correct, that's great. Thumbs up. Well done. You've changed your policy. You're open to, to feedback. Good for you. When, when, people are very very wrong and they can be that could be terrifying like that if if public opinion turns in a certain way so uh, to an extent yes we should applaud people for being able to be reflective um should we not go hard on them for their gaffes absolutely not no they we need to scrutinize people and hold them to account and point out that it's alarming that they had the very 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 scary idea in the first place i mean Uh, yeah yeah I, I agree, because actually the Rwanda policy, which is terrible, is quite popular with the public and therefore not reversed. And so I don't, I mean, for one thing, I don't think launching a shitty policy is a gaffe. <laughs> like no. misspeaking is a gaffe. But actually going, let's slash loads of people's pay. And then it's pointed out to you that this this won't work at all and will be wildly unpopular. And even mm-hmm. people in your own party hate it. And then you're reversing. It seems to be sort of bowing to the inevitable rather than a sort of calm moment of reflection. Yeah. And Liz Truss thinking, maybe I, sh- maybe I should change. It's like simply, it's no. It's people sending back, it's sending back the dish but of shit that you've but served them. But they don't do that. That's, and I think that's the problem. If they went, hold on, maybe yeah. you have a point. Yeah. That's a completely different situation than claiming that journalists have willfully misrepresented so your, your policy by quoting release. it verbatim from your fucking press What's release. What's a Lewis just going, well, we never said that. And it's like, but <laughs> here like, are the words. I have it here. <laughs> yeah, just uh, gaslight the public. That, that doesn't feel like self-reflective um, behaviour to me. That, that seems like the behaviour of a narcissistic liar who wants to bend reality to their will. But um, yeah, so maybe we shouldn't be applauding that. And the danger, I think, becomes that they, they're then free to fly all sorts of kites and then go, oh, sorry, did I say the death penalty for yeah, work yeah. people? I didn't mean that. So, Nina, do you think that the point of a U-turn is not the fact that they've, you know, that they've done one and that that therefore may mean a bad thing doesn't happen, but it, it's the reason that they've done it? Yeah, I mean, context is everything, right? I would just totally agree with what Sarah and Alex have said. In theory, yes, you should applaud a politician for rectifying a mistake. But we disagree with that premise, right? This wasn't a thoughtfully, carefully <laughs> thought out policy. This was just the abomination that is the political character who is Liz Trust just saying verbal diarrhea and just realizing that okay it's not workable so no we should absolutely not applaud her for that it's it's just nonsense well it's like if you have a friend who goes i'm going to drive home after eight pints and then all the friends shout at them don't do that it's dangerous and then he goes yeah all right i'll get a cab you don't give him a round of applause great kind of seeing the error of his ways do you you say like uh, with mates, but that's exactly what it is. Liz Truss is with her mates and she's forgotten that we can all see her. It's a bit like sometimes when I get carried away on Twitter and I tweet something that I think is really right on and then some arsehole comes into my mentions. I'm like, oh, wait, everyone, everyone can see me. And it's sort of like the reverse of that. Like she's the arsehole and she's talking to other arseholes <laughs> and the rest of us can see her. And then suddenly she's like, the lights come on and, and she's got she's got her pants down and she she's, she's like, oh, ah, okay uh shit shit i didn't say it i didn't do it i'm wearing clothes fuck her sorry okay <laughs> well, very, what sweary, very image. once what an image once again bad news for you sarah because 
in our next section, Liz Truss enjoyed a 24-point lead among Tory members when the leadership contest kicked off. Now former leadership candidates are lining up behind her, but the race might be tightening according to some polls. Nina, do you think that Sunak has any chance of overtaking Truss unless, I don't know, her head explodes? No. <laughs> I mean, maybe... If, there, if she speaks less, the more she speaks in public, is there a chance that her popularity will decline amongst the Tory base? No. Look, that's probably just wistful thinking. At the very beginning of the race, I told my husband and my friends, look, Liz Truss is probably going to win. And they're like, no, this, even though undoubtedly we're looking at a very meager selection of minnows, like scraping really at the bottle of the bottom of the barrel here. Um there, you know, others thought that Liz Truss wouldn't be the standout candidate or likely to win. But then again, as I know, and as you know, over many torturous years of analyzing Westminster politics, uh, the Tory <laughs> membership has just this uncanny ability to pick the very worst possible candidate, right? So on that very cynical but probably very accurate understanding of how this ridiculous process is going to lead to another very incompetent, out-of-their-depth person in the position of prime minister. I'm going to protect trust for the win. It's telling, I think, that about 30% of Tory members are still undecided, which means that sort of maybe the underreported truth is that, that these are actually two very weak, flawed <laughs> candidates, and quite a lot of people wish they could vote for somebody else. They're is... standing in front of the sandwich <coughs> fridge and all there is is poop on white and poop on rye. <laughs> <laughs> so going, uh... this, is a, this is actually a more horrible image than, um, than uh, Sarah's pants down <laughs> in the dark image. It's laughable, but whatever you think of the Tory party or Tory leaders, um, it's undeniable that they've had such a uh, important role in shaping this country and its place in the world, that is irrefutable. So when like it boils down to what we've already described as, you know, real minnows kind of we're scraping here at the bottom of the barrel, um, you do wonder, you know, how has it come to this? And I'm sure that Tory party members, I mean, um, even they must be aware of that. I mean, on trust, I literally think she has no clue. I don't think she even wants to be competent. I think being PM is just an endless uh, choreographed set of photo ops and compared to her, Sunak probably is the more competent candidate. However, I mean, the fact that his wife was enjoying non-dom status while he was chancellor, <laughs> vying to become prime minister, while the country is facing the worst cost of living, <laughs> facing recession, I mean, it's completely beyond the pale, isn't you it? Were, you weren't this angry before you left. I am very much enjoying I'm, Nina not having had a chance to vent I like the way you've for come, a few months. You've come back just from a break, all out. furious. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> I'm making you think about I can't remember who, who, point, who, who tweeted this, but I thought this was probably quite right, that actually Sunak is the kind of leader where, you know, the range of results, like 220 to 280 seats, and the truss was, the range was 150 to 350. And that actually the members are going for the riskier option, almost just kind of like, well, the, the safe option among all his other flaws is not attractive. And they're like, okay, she could totally tank the party. <laughs> or... <laughs> New Thatcher, like, so maybe the photo ops worked. She could totally tank the party or she could tank the country. country. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, we've been on that trajectory for quite a few years now, haven't we? So yeah. they're still... That's it, but it's, it's still Johnson's party, I guess. Uh, Sarah, in his desperation to make up some ground, Sunak is pledging to take on woke nonsense. I'm going to quote him now. Whether it's pulling down statues of historic figures, replacing the school curriculum with anti-British propaganda or rewriting the English language. We can't even use words like man, woman or mother without being told we're offending someone, he said, <laughs> putting together his set of Kemi Badenoch fridge magnets. Uh, he's also pandering on immigration, people who vilify Britain and uh, restricting house build building in the green belt. Considering that he was meant to be a kind of like sort of moderate rich bro was kind of his uh, vibe, you know, fiscal hawk, 
but never really talked about woke stuff obviously when he was when he was chancellor is it obvious that his, his heart's not in it these people have lost their minds. They've lost <laughs> their minds. They are just like they are just angry drunks in a park yelling nonsense at each other. <laughs> they, uh, what they, they're just slogan bots for what the worst impulses of the Tory Party want to hear. It's it's just a sludge factory. Oh my god! It, it, what's next? Like, bring back fox hunting. No, bring back hanging. No, hang the fox. Boxes. They've just lost their minds. <laughs> it's a bit like when when I my ideas aren't going down well in a writer's room and, and I'm like, oh, oh, I just pitched something more and more extreme. Extreme is funny. Extreme is good. This is, ah, uh, I don't, I don't have anything coherent to say. I don't know what he's doing. I think, I, I think it's the most desperate, sad, pathetic display I've ever seen. And all this anti-woke stuff is exhausting. Replace woke with just courtesy i'm anti-common courtesy i'm anti-politeness i'm anti-decency i'm anti-speaking to people the way i would like to be spoken to i'm anti not discriminating against people like you you that sounds ludicrous so just slap a label on it and then you can just be as evil as you want with with impunity i i, I don't know there's a bah that's that's what that's how I feel. LGBTQ Tories are complaining that they're being used as a political uh, football. Is that like the sort of the grimmest aspect of this contest? I mean, obviously, like you know, fantasy tax cuts is is not great um, from a fiscal point of view. But is it is it the way that I suppose that they are just grabbing people off the shelf to kick them out for a few weeks? The worst bit of it. Like oh, you know, footballs get kicked less than the LGBTQ community, but right now, how how candidates are behaving, and on both sides of the political d- divide towards the LGBTQ community is disgusting, and a stain on. Uh, and I think in in ten twenty years we're going to look back on this time and the way that that we've all participated in a, in this farce of a moral panic about an issue that is not an issue about people just trying to live their lives in peace and dignity uh, with the same rights that we all enjoy i think it's going to be a stain on us and we're going to remember this era with great shame and i, I you know i think we should all be speaking up loudly it's starting to get very dangerous and very scary and this leadership contest has made an ugly situation somehow even uglier on top of the ugliness, uh, Liz Truss is firing off policies like a tennis ball machine. Um, she's declared a war on... They do like declaring war on things, don't they? <laughs> I oh, genuinely oh. thought that half that Sunak quote yeah. was from this, the Stuart Lee sketch. No, it is. You I love the way that you, you just... can't, you can't, can't say, even say You mother. can't say man and woman. In jail. I said man <laughs> and woman yesterday, and it was fine. Um, <laughs> anyway, she declared a uh, an alliterative war on Whitehall waste. Uh, and plans to say a plan to save eleven billion pounds by cutting wages and holiday pay for civil servants. This is the the policy mentioned earlier. But by civil servants, it turned out actually included nurses and teachers, especially ones who had the audacity to live outside London. I know. Um, so obviously, it was ditched after this massive backlash, including many Tories, uh, who particularly Tories who, um, who who live in the north. Mm. Is the big problem that she has that she has promised thirty four billion pounds in tax cuts and does not have any idea how to pay for them uh, okay are we in the in the world we're in now are we asking this question or in a sort of alternative sane world where someone might notice or she may have to deliver it, this at some oh point? but it's her problem in terms of policy in terms of another policy when it comes to the cut side of things actually it's really really hard because i'm not talking about the tory membership um don't give a shit but you know in the country like it's really, as she's just discovered, you put up something and just go, well, nobody likes Whitehall waste. Nobody likes those fat cat civil servants. <laughs> and it turns actually the, you know, the people don't want to take money away from nurses in Yorkshire. Yeah, so but- there isn't an obvious, there's always that thing of like, well, if we just cut red tape and waste, which everybody wants to cut waste, but it isn't there or there's not enough of it. The, I think the point is that what we're seeing now politically is the outcome of the Brexit referendum <clears throat> campaign in a very real way, where people feel that what's more important is to tell the lie that most closely matches 
your audience's misunderstanding of the facts. And provided you do that, you're never pulled up and there are never any consequences. Right. You're terribly popular. And by the time... By the time you need to deliver the lie that you sold, you can move on to some other misunderstanding and some other lie about trans people or about strikes. And so I think what we're seeing in this campaign in a very real way is the fallout of that referendum, is the fallout of that period in which a lot of fucking lies were told and no one really pulled them up. And actually the liars were rewarded in a very real way for a sustained period um, afterwards. Well, also from the land of impossible things, she says she wants to slash 2,400 EU regulations <laughs> by the end of 2023. I mean... To, which is just absolutely no, amazing. Listen, and she doesn't... It, let, let, let me just correct you. She doesn't say she just wants to slash them. She says she wants to replace them with better regulation. So she's not just talking about doing away with any EU-derived legislation, 2000, over 2,000 pieces of it, in the space of a single parliamentary year. She's talking about replacing them with domestic regulation, not doing any presumably proper debate on them, not yeah. consulting the sectors involved on in them, not doing any environmental impact assessments. <laughs> like, fuck all that. We're just going to invent stuff to replace all this stuff that was there. And what you're seeing is that even in a really discreet area, like the chemical sector, they're now facing two billion more in um, costs purely because they have to apply to two regimes for the chemicals that they're handling. They now have to still apply to the EU regime because most of the chemicals either come through there or are sold there or are components of stuff that is sold there. or And they have to go through a different regulatory framework to satisfy the new UK um, regulation. So this idea that this creates a bonfire of red tape is nonsense. It doubles the red tape for a lot of companies. N Nina was looking unimpressed again with this with this Tory leadership <laughs> contest. Um, so also, when 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 Liz Truss uh, said that Nicola Sturgeon was an attention seeker, it's best to ignore. Was that perhaps a a hostage it's, to fortune? <laughs> it's just the. Is the disdain clear in my voice? I just how how can you how can you take this person who is purportedly standing for the most important office in this country, where you know uh, there is a very real risk that one part of the country is going to break away into independence, and her remark for the leader of that movement is to say, this is a, what, what did she say? She's an attention seeker and it's best to ignore yeah, her. Yeah. I mean, come on. It's just, <laughs> I, have, I have no words. I have. Yeah. If there was like a manual of how to make things worse, everything would be in there. It's so everything bad. We're laughing about it, but these are the people who have their finger on the nuclear button. Right. And that's the terrifying thing. It is just, I just, cannot understand how these are the last two candidates standing to become next prime minister of great britain and in the very short period and this is and not they weren't even the worst yeah the very short period that she was the point for the, for the situation in ukraine before johnson realized this was verdant yeah, yeah. pr ground and jumped on it you know she managed to make statements that uh, that made Russia put their nuclear weapons on higher alert. She told people to go and join the conflict there and then disavowed it. And now people are captured or mm. dead there. She is a very, very dangerously stupid person on the international stage. N Nina, how well is trust known and respected in Ukraine? Because I think one of the hard things, one of the hard things for this podcast uh, is, the, is that our, our distaste for Boris Johnson always has to be qualified by um, the fact that, you know, Zelensky and the Ukrainian people are, are really very, very fond of him and very grateful. Does that extend to trust? And is she likely to milk that in the same way as Johnson did? So I think that 
Undoubtedly, look, the Foreign Secretary of Britain, the Prime Minister of Britain, as one of the nuclear powers in Europe, one of the nuclear powers of the world, um, one of the military powers in Europe, is important to Ukraine. So there's no doubt about that. But I would love to be a fly on the wall in um, some of these meetings that Liz Truss has with foreign leaders or, (laughs) you know, the Ukrainian kind of government um, now under invasion. Actually, I don't know if I could watch. It'd probably be way too cringeworthy. <laughs> the worst peep show episodes. Look, be like, what? What? why is <laughs> that flying vomiting you know, on the wall? You just like, can't watch it because it's just like, oh my God, I cannot believe this. Can you imagine what goes on behind closed doors? Because the comments she must make must be, um, if she says comments like, join the war in Ukraine publicly, I can't imagine what she says to uh, leaders behind closed doors. Look, it's completely cynical the way in which Boris and now undoubtedly Liz will use this to bolster their own image. It's pathetic. And based on what Alex just said, it's very irresponsible and dangerous. It's pathetic because we know that how they look supporting Ukraine is far more important to them than actually supporting Ukraine. And it's irresponsible and dangerous Because this is a conflict which could quickly, either intentionally or unintentionally, escalate into a global nuclear standoff or conflict. And you can just see how someone like Truss could just walk into there as prime minister. I mean, she's already done it, right? She already made uh, Russia kind of put their nuclear weapons on high alert. But you can just see how the next kind of accomplishment on her CV will be started nuclear (laughs) because as i'm sure we've covered before in this show she's an idiot we've managed to make cena look quite quite good said that before yeah i think but but still she isn't even the worst suella braverman Before we go, let's take a quick look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve because of trust mania in uh, <laughs> Under the Radar. Uh, Sarah, um, what would you like to recommend people think about? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry in advance. Um, this is from the Metro. If heat wave hits 42 Celsius, bees may ejaculate themselves to death. Um, this is this is a real thing. What? Um, apparently... Um, when honeybees get too hot, they literally ejaculate themselves to death. Male worker bees are subjected to very high temperatures. Their bodies begin to convulse, which forces them to ejaculate their abdomen-sized penis equivalent, apparently, out of their body and die from the shock, which is obviously... I don't watch Love Island, but is this what happens on that? <laughs> that that's how they get eliminated. That's a, every, every oh, I um, see. Maybe I should watch it. But you know, if, if it feels considerate of the bees because the like obviously the demise of the bees signals the the demise of our planet and it's a tragedy. But they're they're giving us a good laugh on the way out. At least they're having the decency to be to 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 you know go out on a gag. So that's nice of them. <laughs> while we all burn. <laughs> Nina, beat that. So this is really heartwarming, and it's a little bit of. AI magic. And um, I want to highlight this NGO based in California. Of course, they're based in California. They're called the Earth Species Project. And they're using artificial intelligence with the ambition of decoding non-human communication. So by using artificial intelligence, they want to be able to communicate and decode uh, the language of animals. So, so they could hear the bees going, oh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, God. Exactly. That, that would be nice. Uh, exactly. Um, so, you know, in the 1970s, this album of whale song galvanized the movement, the global movement that led to the banning of commercial whaling. So just imagine what an AI-powered Google Translate for the animal kingdom could do. Oh, wow. Wow. That is genuinely mind-bending. That's right? very futuristic. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also got some good news. that Obviously, since uh, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, Republican legislatures across the U.S. have been rushing to ban abortion. Um, and in Kansas, they put 
forward an amendment to the state constitution, which, because Kansas, even though it has a democratic governor, is a very red state, um, was expecting to win that. But thanks to massive, I don't say just democratic uh, turnout, certainly massive pro-choice turnout, Mm. um, it was rejected in a landslide. And there is an indication that this, this may or may not feed into higher democratic turnout in the midterms, mm, mm. Um, which might really improve that situation. But it certainly seems that on these, on these kind of ballot measures, that there is the, the anti... I don't think the anti-abortion people have thought this through at all. I don't think they, they anticipate the backlash. I think they've hugely overreached. Yeah. And, and what was the sort of biggest kind of... One of the biggest stories in recent weeks was like um, a 10-year-old... Um, should be forced to bear her rapist's child. Now, that's not a good message uh, politically. No. Um, And it seems that they've hugely overreached. There's a massive backlash that they didn't anticipate. And obviously, it doesn't change how bad that Supreme Court decision is. It doesn't change the fact that many, many people are going to lose the right to an abortion. But it does show that there are surprising, in in Kansas of all places, Mm. there is a surprising amount of resistance. And I was looking at sort of American politics Twitter to see if somebody had found a downside to this. And even they had not. Mm. It does appear to just be like a very good thing. Fascinating. Um, So my story is not intended to bring the party down. It is also intended as a spur for resistance. Um, This week was Roma Genocide Remembrance Day. It marks the date on which the Auschwitz-Birkenau camp effectively liquidated tens of thousands of Roma. And it has passed largely unnoticed. And I think there's a responsibility on all of us to educate ourselves on this, to educate others on this, because Roma and travellers are one of the very last groups towards whom it feels okay to be racist. It feels you know, it's still broadly acceptable to say shit about them as a group. And I think going back Mm. and looking at the arguments made back then is a real corrective to our understanding of what's fair and what's not to say about a group of people. And that's the show. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Nina. Thank you. And Sarah. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Don't forget the listener survey. The link is in the show notes um, if you want to say how good we are. And don't forget our final live Leicester Square Theatre show of 2022 on Wednesday, the 14th of September. Go to leicestersquaretheatre.com for tickets. Stay tuned for the extra bit exclusively for backers on Patreon. And that's after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. And a thanks to some of the backers from our huge backlog of loyal supporters. Your patience is appreciated. Hello and many thanks for your generosity to Aline Roach, AWM, Ian Houston, Peter Mishcon, James Illingworth, Glenn Frankham, Valerie May Duskin, Sarah Walker, Paul Quinn and Nick Bailey. Greetings and a huge thank you from me to Deborah Miller, Tony Walker, Nicholas Turner, Chris Gidlow, Roger Howie, Leila Nicola, Robert Allen, Matthew Powell, Simon Wilson, and Carla Musgrove. And finally, thanks for me to Justin Meadows, Nicola Brooke, Kat Shannon, Carol Sidney, Linda Lloyd, Kath Moore, Sophie Hanscom, Francois Barton, Loreline Van Capel, and Lila Toff. See you next time. Oh God, What Now was presented by Dorian Linsky with Alex Andreu and Nina Schick. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jan Lasofrenevich, Jacob Archbold, and me, Alex Reese. With assistant production from Kasia Tomasiewicz. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, England's victory at the Women's Euros was the biggest achievement by an England football team since 1966. But only 63% of schools offer football to girls as an option in PE, while the academy system to foster the next generation of talent pales in comparison to men's teams. And in fact, the entire England uh, squad just came out to uh, 
demand or request that football should be offered to all girls across the country. So how could sports education be improved in the UK? And what are our memories of school PE? I call this the trauma bit (laughs) for me personally. Uh, Sarah, how keen were you on the Lionesses before the tournament? Obviously, we're all we're all very big fans now. Were you sort of tracking their progress? I'm not going to lie. The trauma, the PE-based trauma is so deep that even even my feminist credentials can't make me care about football. Like, I really wanted to, um, but, like, it's, it's just too much. It's one of those things where, like... With every other issue in the world, I'm like, you know what? Believe people and their experiences. Just because I haven't experienced something doesn't mean that's not their reality. I don't believe that anyone is good at sport. I can't conceive of it. It's not in my reality. <laughs> uh, but I'm really happy for them as a concept, as an idea, as like, as you know, uh, as as progress for women. Mm-hmm. As uh, I'm really, really happy and and proud of them. But 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 also, I don't care. <laughs> I want to care, but I can't because it hurts. And that was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.